on October the 13th, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 set out with the old Christian rugby team to go to a rugby match in Curaco, Chile. And on their way, the, they had an inexperienced co-pilot who was taking over the controls of the flight. And in the midst of all of the fog and all of the clouds there in the Andes Mountains, he began to descend too quickly and fly too low. And he crashed the plane at 11,000 feet. 40 of the 45, miraculously, 40 of the 45 passengers on board survived the crash. But what they found was when they landed that the conditions there were not suitable to life. There was negative 20 degree temperatures. There was no food to eat. There was no refuge that they could take from the storms. In addition to that, many of them had devastating injuries that had come as a result of the crash. And before it was all said and done due to an avalanche, due to the starvation, due to negative 20 degree weather, due to the injuries that they had already sustained, only 16 of them remained. Horrifyingly, they made a pact with one another that if I am to pass on, that you may use my body as sustenance, just trying to make it a little bit further. They eventually came to realize that all of the search efforts, all of the, this is a picture of the flight by the way, they came to realize that all of the search efforts had been called off and that if they had any hope to survive that they were going to have to in some way trick their way out. Now none of them had winter clothes and none of them had mountaineering experience and this we're not talking about climbing over Chiha, okay, we're talking about 11,000 plus feet on the edge of a glacier. And so two of the men, a man by the name of Roberto Canessa and another man by the name of Nando Parado. Nando himself is sustained a skull fracture. And from that skull fracture, when they first crashed, was comatose for three days. But what they decided is that they were going to have to make the trek and try to go to Curaco, which they believed was just about 10 miles away, three days journey away. The only path that they could chart was straight up and over a peak which was an additional 5,000 feet. So they were going to be climbing to 15, 16,000 feet without any kind of climbing gear, without any kind of climbing experience, and really without any winter clothing. They took the, uh, a waterproof bag or sack that they found, and they took the insulation out of the tail of the plane where the tail had broken off, and they actually began to sew it into this bag, and they made a sleeping bag in which they could go and they could sleep in it. They, they covered their shoes, not with mountaineering boots, okay? They covered their shoes with plastic bags to keep them dry. And they began this trek. And the commitment that they made to one another was that we're either going to die or we're going to find help. Believing it was just a few days away, they took three days worth of rations. In fact, they were not 10 miles away. They were more than 50 miles away. And it took them three days just to ascend to the top of the peak on the highest part, which meant their rations were gone before they had even began their descent down into the valley. Around every corner and over every ridge, they continued to convince themselves that they're almost there. They continued to, to remind themselves it's either survival or death. It's either, either health or we die trying. They continued to climb and they continued to go in 10 days, more than 38 miles from the crash site. They were discovered by two ranchers, two ranchers who happened to be far out into the wilderness. You know, that's an amazing story. 
an amazing story of survival, how all 16 of them are ultimately able to make it to the other side, make it back into the arms of their families. But how was it that they were able to keep going? How was it that they were able to sustain? How, how was it that they were able to continue taking yet another step? It comes down to one word, doesn't it? Hope. Hope. That they always had hope. That they were surviving on nothing left but sheer, pure, unmitigated hope that around this curve was the help. That over that ridge was the ranch. That the city was just a little bit further, a few more steps, a few more days, a few more hours, a few, a few more miles. And, and there they would finally make it. Then all of their friends would be saved. Then they would be returned to the arms of the people that they love. You know, the truth is, is this is an illustration of our lives. At some point or another in your life, it's going to feel as though you've crashed into a glacier. It's going to happen. It may be your health. It may be a relationship. It may be the inability to have a baby. It may be your job going away. It may be depression that seems to come on from nowhere. It may be anxiety that overwhelms you. It may be difficulty in your parenting. It may be any number of a million things. But you come to a place, and what it feels like is it feels like you have plane crashed into some great glacier into your life and that you're on the edge of freezing to death. What do you do? How do you make it? The answer is the same, brothers and sisters. The only way that you make it is the same way that they made it. Hope. Hope. But not just hope. Hope in and of itself can be devastating. False hope is perhaps the most dangerous thing in the world. But, but true, legitimate hope, there is no force on earth more powerful than that that allows you to go yet another day. Hope only helps insofar as it is legitimate and substantial. And so what I want us to see this morning is I want us to see from David the pathway of legitimate hope. The pathway of legitimate hope. See, you'll notice this morning from our text, and what I wanted you to see here in just a second, is that David starts where everything starts. David starts with the foundation. That is that your house is no stronger, your house has no more integrity than the integrity of its foundation. And hope is the same. Hope has no more integrity, no more strength than it has integrity. The integrity of your hope is the strength, the foundation of your life. So what I want you to see is that legitimate hope is founded upon God's character. Legitimate hope is founded upon God's character. That apart from a thorough realization of the trustworthiness and dependability of God's character, there is nothing upon which you can build legitimate hope. That God's character is the concrete or the bedrock to the legitimacy of your house. That God's, God's character is the bedrock, the concrete to the legitimacy of a joyful life on your behalf. That's why he's able to say what he says in verse 5. Notice what he says. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning that I may cry all night long. I may be in the darkest season of my life. I may live as though I'm living in one long night. But there is hope in front of us. There is real, abounding, substantial hope. And that hope is, is even though I cry and I weep through the darkness of this night, that joy Joy's coming in the morning. Joy's coming tomorrow. 
But how can you actually have hope like that? How does David arrive and land in this place of hope? How can he be so sure? It's because there's an underpinning to his hope. It's because there's a foundation to his hope. It's because there's, there's pillars beneath that hope, holding it up and holding it steady and keeping it strong. That is that he knows where his concrete is. He knows where the anchor point of his life is. He knows what, is, what it is, and it is nothing more than the, than the foundation of God's very character. That's why he says what he says. So he tells us to sing praises. You notice that? He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Why do we do that? Why do we sing praises? Why do we give thanks to him? We give thanks to him because his name is holy. Because of his holy name. That is, when we're talking about holy, we're talking about his moral excellence. We're talking about the composite of all of the great things about God. When we say God is just and God is love and God is gracious and God is merciful, when we say that God is omniscient and omnipotent, when we say that that God is long-suffering and God is steadfast in love, it is the composite of all of these things coming together that makes God holy. It is all of those wonderful attributes of the Lord himself that come together to describe God in his nature and in his essence, who he actually is. And the singular word the Bible uses to describe God's moral excellence is the word holiness. In other words, David says, yeah, the way that I know, the reason that I sing, the reason in the midst of the darkness of the night I am able to declare and extol the Lord, even though I am laying at the bottom of the pit, even though I am at the bottom of the well, the way that I am able to know is I know that my God's name is holy. I know that he is morally excellent. I know that he is dependable. I know that he is trustworthy. But I want you to notice that there is a specific, a specific aspect of his moral excellence that he's pointing out. Notice what he says. There's a four here, okay? When there's a four, that means that the thought is continuing forward, right? He's giving explanation. He's unpacking the reason that we sing praises because of his holy name. We have thankfulness for his holiness. What is it? That his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Do you see this? In other words, that God's favor always outlasts his discipline. So as he is singing and as he is thinking about the moral excellence of his God, as he's thinking about the dependability of his character, as he's thinking about his moral excellence, and as he's he's thinking about how wonderful God is, there's a single thought that comes into his mind, and it says that God's heart is bent more toward grace than it is toward anger. That it's more determined to restore than it is to discipline, that it's more resolved to heal than it is to destroy. Now, y'all, that's legitimate hope. That's legitimate hope. When you have a God who is morally excellent, a God who is just and righteous and holy, when you have a God that is far beyond all things and far above all things, and yet that God, that God which should come and smite you from the earth, that God which should come and slay you in your life, that God which should open up the floodgates of his justice and overwhelm you with all of it, when he is more determined to show you his love than his wrath, when he is more determined to show you his mercy than his judgment, Y'all, that's hope. That's hope. 
when he is more determined to take the, the hardships and the nights of your lives and transform them into, into, into joy in the morning? That's hope. And this was David's experience. So I understand that this psalm to be based upon a particular experience in David's life. You'll read about this experience both in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and then in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And what happens is, is that David decides that he's going to take a census. He's going to go, he's nearing the end of his reign, he's nearing the end of his life. And so essentially what he does is he, essentially, he decides that he wants to take a census and the census is going to declare his legacy. So he would go basically and he would begin to count all of his fighting men. He'd begin to, de- to count all of his warriors. And the idea was to show just how great, how vast, and how secure the kingdom had co- become during David's reign. And so he would go and they would declare, we are a million strong. We have more than a million, wor- a million warriors. We are a military that cannot be defeated. We have a prosperity that cannot be matched. And that, and that military means that that prosperity is now secure. Hell, King David. King David is great. And what the scriptures make clear is that God detested, detested the self-aggrandizement that we find in David's life. That he sees David puffing up his chest and patting himself on the back and declaring his strength and declaring the security of his kingdom and declaring the far-reaching nature of his, of his glory and his honor without the first time paying lip service to the glory and the provision and the favor of his God. And so God detests it. And God says that I'm going to bring judgment upon David and I'm going to bring judgment upon Israel so that you can see that your security was not dependent upon a military. Your prosperity was not because you are a great king, but both of those things were resting and abiding and provided for by me. And so he does something that is a bit un. Unprecedented. Do you guys, I don't know, maybe y'all didn't have this experience, but I had this experience growing up. Y'all ever have your mom or dad tell you to go get the switch that they're going to whip you with? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Is there anything more cruel or sadistic than that in parenting? Like, I think that's the bottom of the barrel. But my parents did this, and I always thought that I was going to get away with something, right? I would always go, and I would find, like, the little wimpy dead limb and then it was going to crack you know break as soon as they spanked me with it and they said so you would come back and you would make your offering to your mom and dad right here you are my mother you know here you are my father and then they would put and the whole thing would just kind of fall over limp right and what would they do they would go and they would find the most limber solid and then you really you really got it so it was almost like it was this dirty trick right Well, in this unprecedented moment in Scripture, what God does is God actually presents to David three different options for his discipline. And he allows David to choose the discipline for his particular sin that he desired. He got to either choose that he was going to have three years of famine, three months of being overtaken by his enemies, or three days of a plague among his people. But it wasn't a trick in God's case. It was a revelation of his character. At least that's how David understood it. And so I want you to hear how David, the decision that David chose. Now I want you to think, okay, this precedes, this is before Psalm 30 is written. Psalm 30 is written about this. Listen to what he says. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Do you hear what he's saying? What is he saying there? 
He's essentially saying the same thing that he says in Psalm 30. That his anger is but for a moment and his favor lasts for a lifetime. That that I know I want myself to be in the hands of God because God's character is trustworthy. Because his character is dependable. Because I know that I would rather be at the mercies of God than at the anger of men. That it is dependable and trustworthy. That is, David believed on the front end what he was now in, verse, in Psalm 30 praising God for on the back end. He already believed it, y'all. David had put himself at the bottom of the well. This was discipline. This was his fault. This was, this was laying at his feet. And yet he knew that God would draw him out. That's the word there in verse 1. He would draw him out of the well. D- David had afflicted himself. He had afflicted his people. And yet he knew that the Lord was more inclined to heal him than to kill him in his affliction. David had placed himself at the bottom of the pit, but he knew that from the bottom of the pit, in the valley of death, in the Sheol itself, that God would come and God would deliver him from those things. Why? Because that was the character of God. His anger may tarry for the night, but his favor remains in the morning, that his discipline, his mercy always outlasts his discipline. So ultimately, Psalm 30 is a celebration that God is who David believed he was. It's a celebration, in other words, that David's hope placed in God's character was totally and utterly legitimate. See, David's hope was God's character, and yours is too. Yours is too. That's how you keep putting one foot in front of another one. That's how you keep going through today when today is hard. That's how you lay your head down on the pillow while you're weeping throughout the night. That's how you keep pressing on when it feels like you have no more life to give, no more strength to go on, because you already believe. That's what hope is. Hope is already believing. Hope is already believing God is trustworthy while you're still suffering. Hope is already being convinced that joy is coming coming even when you're in the darkest part of the night that this is even true if you're suffering of because of your own sin like David was I wonder if there's somebody here and your first marriage ended and it ended mostly because of you I I wonder if there's some of you here and you've lied so much in your life that you have no credibility with anybody nobody actually takes you seriously I wonder if there's somebody here that maybe your temper has driven everyone close to you out of your life and now you're you're at a place in your life where really you're lonely. I wonder if there's some of you that's carrying around guilt every day, carrying around scars every day, carrying around pain every day. And you think, yeah, 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 for all of them there is hope. For all of the people that haven't messed up as big as me, there's hope. For all the people that doesn't have a temper like I do, there's hope. For all the people that haven't haven't had the unbelief the way that I do, there's hope. Look at David, dear brother. Look at David, dear sister. There is hope for you. There is hope for you. You, you in the pit. You who have placed yourself at the bottom of the well. You who have done it yourself. You have hope. And you have a hope even if you dug the pit yourself because God's character is not dependent upon your character. God's character is dependent upon himself. In fact, it was from the overflow of his character that Jesus came into this earth to be born of a virgin. 
It was so that you could see his love and mercy and justice in such a clear way that it legitimized your hope in him. And so we can respond to what David says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, give thanks to his holy name. If it's God's character that is the foundation of our hope, then surprisingly, perhaps, it is our suffering that are its trusses and floor, uh, floor joists. That is, if God's character starts us down the pathway of real hope, then it's suffering that strengthens and deepens the conviction of that hope. Legitimate hope is strengthened through our sufferings. Legitimate hope is strengthened through our sufferings. I wonder if that, if that takes some of you back right now. I wonder if, if for some of you that is a bit of sur- surprise. Okay, so if we can take this psalm and we can divide it into two halves, really two stanzas, right? And the way we should see it is we should see that the second stanza really explains and elaborates on the first stanza. That, In other words, David kind of gives us insight into why he was disciplined as he was. He gives us insight into why he faced what he faced. He says, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I like the way that the New Living Translation translate this, translates this. It says that in my self-confidence, I thought I was immovable. In my self-confidence, I thought I was indestructible. All of you guys, you probably remember being, what, 17 or 18? In your self-confidence, you did not lack, did you? In your self-confidence, you believed yourself to be indestructible. I tell everybody that I've spent my 30s trying to recover from my 20s, right? That, that I basically have to have surgery every other, week, every other week because I could say with David, in my self-confidence, I am indestructible. In my self-confidence, I am immovable. David took a census because he wanted everyone to know how indestructible he was. David took a census because he just needed a little bit of recognition in, your li- in his life. I wonder if some of you senior saints could, could identify with David here at the end of his life. Where, where he's saying, I just wish somebody would acknowledge how much I've sacrificed. I just wish somebody would acknowledge how far I've went. I wish somebody would just see all the things that I've given up so that this kingdom, so that this family can be great. But what David had missed what he was soon to learn is that his security had nothing to do with his one million man army. It had nothing to do with his sacrifices. It had nothing to do with his brilliance as a strategic leader. No, in the background, lost in all of the hype, was the favor of God that was holding David up and holding Israel together. You'll notice there's a shift in pronouns between verse 6 and 7, okay? When, when you're reading the scripture, it's really important that you don't miss these things, all right? So notice this. As for me, me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I think that we should think of this as the old David. This is David before he goes through the, the, the three-day plague. This is David before he is disciplined by the Lord. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, all of it is about me. All of it is mine. All of it is what I have attained. All of it is what I deserve. All of it is what I have, I have built in my life. I said I cannot be moved. But listen, there's a shift, right? This is the realization that David comes to, but your favor Oh Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Do you hear what he says? This is the new David. 
This is what David learns. This is what many of you have learned over the course of your life, that you get to this place and you thought it was all about me. It's all about what I've built. It's, it's all about what I have earned. Look at how I've built up my, my standing in this world. Look at how I've provided my kids with so much. Look at how I've helped my wife so much. Look at all that I've earned. Look at all that I deserve. And then you are brought to the bottom of the valley and you realize I have nothing to everything I ever had, every day of good health, every day of good fortune, every day of good hope, all of that was built on something other than myself. All of that was built on something bigger than me. So David realizes something, that I was dismayed, I was dismayed. In other words, what happened was, is when David took over his own hope, he immediately delegitimized it. His hope became illegitimate the second that he took responsibility for it. That his hope began to unravel as David put it upon his strength, as David put it upon his reign, as David put it upon his military. Immediately his hope unraveled so that now there was no hope left. So that now that he was totally dismayed and in despair as though there was no place for him to turn and no place for him to, to go. You see, you make your hope insecure. You make your hope insecure. I wonder if that's why you're so worried this morning. I wonder if that's why you're so worried. You're trying to balance and spin a thousand plates at the same time. Man, mom, especially here as we go into the holiday season, grandmom, especially as we go into the holiday season, it's so easy to feel like you've got to take responsibility for everybody else to have fun, for everybody else to have a great experience. And so you've got all these things that you have to do. You have to keep the house and cook the meal and prepare the thing and, and keep the traditions going and make sure that everybody is, has got something that they like and something that they enjoy. And then you have the things, not just that you have to do, but the things that you want to do. And so you just keep running and running and running and run it and eventually you look and you feel like you're just being swept away by the current that the harder you run the more you battle the more miserable you are and the further away from any feeling of hope that you are in other words you might say with David I was dismayed I am dismayed you know last summer Gracie Kate and I we were playing with bodyboards in the ocean now Gracie is a little bitty tiny little thing right and so we're out there in the middle of the ocean and the waves are crashing in and she would ride it all the way, but she would, couldn't get to me. That, that she would try to go through the waves and the waves would, would keep moving her away. They would keep sweeping her to the left or to the right. And so I would be standing there, I'd be saying, come on, baby, come on, baby, come to me. And she'd, Dad, I can't, I can't. And the waves would take her under and they would take her under and they would take her under. And eventually I realized that she was getting really scared. She, she was becoming afraid because here she was being taken under by the waves, being taken in an opposite direction of what she's trying to go, no matter how hard she tried. And the harder she tried, the more impossible it seemed. So you know what I did? I went over there to her and I grabbed her from underneath the water and I picked her up and I pulled her close and she's almost in tears. And I pulled her and she's, she's shaken and I hold her close to me. And within a matter of seconds, you know what happened? She stopped shaking. She stopped being afraid. She was ready to get back on the bodyboard and go again. She was ready to have fun again. Is that not how our suffering is? Is that not how our suffering is? 
hear the, the waves of this life come crashing down on us and it keeps taking us under. And it's like the harder we try to do the right thing, the more we try to press on, the, the further we try to go. It's like it keeps taking us further and further and further off course. And eventually we become afraid and we start to shake. Eventually we become overwhelmed and it's like we're under the water and we have no hope. Do you know that's what suffering does? Suffering allows us to flex our muscles to show how big and strong and weak and utterly helpless we really are so that there in the midst of those waves our heavenly father reaches his hand underneath the wave and he pulls us up and he draws us in and he holds us close and he's holding on to us and his grip it will not be broken but it's even though I am far stronger than Gracie and even though Gracie has no chance of getting away from me if I don't want her to you know what she did in those waves she held on to her dad she clung to her dad that's what suffering does and that's how suffering strengthens our hope it calls for us to cling to our heavenly father to hold tightly to our heavenly father so that our trembling begins to stop so that eventually Eventually, our, our hearts begin to rest so that now we're able to go on into joy. Yet again, suffering strengthens our hope insofar as it calls for us to lean into our Heavenly Father, lean into the character of who He is. You see, our suffering isn't divorced from God's character. I don't care what the suffering is in your life. It isn't divorced from God's character. It flows from God's character. The pain that David felt, it didn't mean that God didn't love him. The pain that David felt meant that God wanted to know David better. That David, he wanted David to know him better. I want you to notice this. All right. So if you'll notice at the beginning of verse three, this is David's praise, right? He says, I will extol you, O Lord. What populated David's praise? I wonder what populates your praise. I bet it's, I bet it's one and the same. Do you notice what, what, what populates his praise? You have drawn me up like out of a well. He has not let my foes over, uh, rejoice over me. Oh, Lord, I cried to you for help. I needed help, and you have healed me. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. That's like going down into the valley of dead to, the, to a version of hell, and you restored stored my life among those who go down into the pit. Do you know what populated the praise of David? His suffering, his suffering, and God's character shining through in his life to his suffering. Is that not what populates your praises, brothers and sisters? Do you know what populates his prayers? Look at the last half in the second stanza. He begins to pray. How does he pray? To you, O Lord, I cry. To you, to, and to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Oh, will it hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me? O Lord, be my helper. Do you know what compels David to pray? Do you know what populates his prayer? His suffering. The same thing. David's suffering populates his prayers, and David's suffering populates his praise. So what can we say? His suffering, his suffering strengthened, strengthened his hope. It legitimized his hope. His suffering and your suffering was an invitation to further substantiate just how legitimate your joy is in Christ. Your suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Your suffering means that God wants you to know him better. Will you accept the invitation this morning? Will you accept his invitation this morning? Hope has a right now 
today in the heat of the moment effect too. If God's character and our suffering function in the background beneath the surface, our hope is then is displayed in an outer glory in the stunning architecture of our lives, in the brilliant colors that causes people to stop and admire. And on the outside, it is demonstrated by our resilience. That legitimate hope is demonstrated by our resilience, by our, what appears to be our ability to, to bounce back. What appears to be our ability to laugh again the next day after we've endured such crying and weeping in the middle of the night. See, we live in a world of chronic pain, don't we? We live in a chronic pain world. I would tell you that out of all of the things that I counsel people through, chronic pain is the worst. And I, and I use that in a, in a sweeping sense. Here's what I mean by that. That your chronic pain may be in your body physically like, like mine is. Or your chronic pain may be in a relationship that just never seems to get better. In a marriage that never seems to get easier. Your, your chronic pain may be a job that, that you can't do without, but you really can't stand either. That is, that is oppressive in your life. Your, your chronic pain may be anxiety that, that onsets out of the middle of nowhere. Or depression that, that you really can't seem to find the code or the combination to the lock of. But we live in a chronic pain World And what chronic pain does is it's like chronic pain takes you underneath the water and it tends to hold you there, doesn't it? Chronic pain takes a pillow and it lays it over your face and it holds it on there. It, it, it seeks to, to drown you, to, to suffocate you. That's what our enemy tries to do. Our enemy seeks to fill our lives with mourning and misery. He seeks to rob us of all joy. This broken world seeks to drain your life of all of its hope. But it is our God's character. It is our God's character to work through our sufferings so that our mourning turns into dancing. It is our God's character that my mourning, my mourning, my grieving, my loss is going to become a population of my praise. It is going to become a manifestation of my worship. It is going to allow me, in other words, to bounce back. It is that you have loosed the, the gravelly sackcloth that is scratching my skin and misery and reminding me of my sense of loss day in and day out and replacing it with the light, airy, wonderful, life-giving clothes of gladness. See, to be a child of joy is to be certain that joy is coming in the morning. To be a child of, of God is to be a certain that joy is coming in the morning, but it's to actually live like it. It's not just to know these things intellectually. It's to know that joy is coming in the morning and then actually live and hinge all of the behavior in your life, all of the actions in your life, all of the decisions in your life, like you actually believe that. It makes me think of Lynn. I was a young, a young minister. I mean, I, many of you probably still consider me a young minister. I was a very young minister in my early 20s at my one of my previous churches that I served in. And I was sent, I was told that we have a lady in our church named Lynn and that Lynn is terminally ill with cancer. There was, she was not receiving treatments any longer. She was within a matter of weeks of dying. And so what they told me is that my job was to go and to encourage her. Now, can you imagine 22, 23 years old and my job is to walk into the house of a 60 year old, 60 something year old and to make her feel better about the fact that she's dying. And I remember going into Lynn's house, a humble home, 
and walking in and just being overwhelmed, she shouted from the door, is that one of my pastors? Is that one of my pastors? Come on over, pastor. I was nervous wreck, y'all. And I go and I start talking to Lynn and I can hardly even get a word in edgewise. I don't really want to talk anyway because I'm scared to death. I've never really talked somebody through death before. But over and over, she would start telling me about her family. And she would start telling me about her life. And she, start, she would tell me about what great thing her granddaughter had just done. Or she would tell me about what wonderful experience she had just had. And what I quickly came to realize is that Lynn is probably the happiest person I've ever met in my life. And I went repeatedly, and it wasn't an act. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, inauthentic. It was just pure, unfiltered joy in Lynn's life. And so eventually I asked her, Lynn, how is it, being in the state that you're in, that you're able to be at such peace? You're able to have such joy. You know what she said? She said, Jesus is waiting on me, and I'm ready for him. Jesus is waiting on me. And I'm ready for him. I don't know if there's a better sentence to summarize the Christian life than that one. Jesus is ready for us, and we are ready for him. You see, she knew that even though she was drowning in the darkness of night, that joy was coming in the morning. She knew the day was coming soon in which her last tear would be wiped away, and only the joyful morning would be left. She knew that, y'all, because as we enter into the holiday season, this is not just about presents, and this is not about Black Friday being on or being off. This is not about Christmas tree. This is because Jesus came. Jesus came, and when he came, we mourned for him three days as his body laid there in the grave. But then joy came on that Sunday morning when he was raised from the dead, and in that moment, hope was eternally legitimized, and suffering was placed on notice. All suffering and all sadness y'all now has an expiration date Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again and so right now in this world of chronic pain every time God turns your tears to joy and your mourning to, to dancing he gives you a preview of what your ultimate future of that joyful morning that will never pass oh Lord my God we say with David I will give thanks to you forever Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 